The following program is presented by the National Committee on United States-China Relations, www.ncuscr.org. Well, first let me thank uh, Ted for and New York Life, our friends at New York Life, for providing us this wonderful venue. And yeah, Admiral Pierre certainly has. It's important that you're on that board so we can have this this, this venue. Um, and I want to welcome all of you, which is and repeat what Ted said, which is this is the first time that all five former ambassadors have been together. So this is a, a real pleasure. This coming Sunday is the 30th anniversary of the announcement on December 15, 1978, that we were going to establish diplomatic relations with China on January 1, and then on March 1, we were going to open uh, embassies, embassies in each other's countries. I think it's fair to say that this breakthrough laid the foundation for extraordinary improvements in U.S.-China relations. In fact, I think it's fair to say that coupled with Deng Xiaoping's reform and opening, this really laid the foundation for China's economic, social, and political developments over the next three decades. The seeds that were planted 30 years ago flowered, it's fair to say, in part because the United States sent eight extraordinary Americans to China to represent our interests. So it's really terrific that we can begin the celebration of this anniversary with five of these extraordinary Americans. Obviously, Ambassador Woodcock and Ambassador Hummel are no longer with us, but these five have had extraordinary not only as extraordinary careers as ambassadors, but have been leaders in the military, in politics, in non-government organizations, and in business. But I don't want to use all of our time to um, go over their bios, which you all have. Now, Sandy Rant couldn't be with us today, and he tells me he will step down on, um, on January 20th. And on January 21st, he's going to be replaced by someone who has very strong, a very strong background in China. Someone whose relations with China, with China's leadership, are truly extraordinary. In fact, one who has a very close relationship with Hu Jintao. And I'm told is going to become available on uh, January 21st for work. And George W. Bush will <laughs> be. That's a joke. <laughs> Drum roll. So, uh, that's a joke, guys. If this is on C SPAN, this is like, that was a joke. That was just a joke. Um, you know, I thank all five of you for being with us tonight. Again, as I said, this is the perfect beginning of this celebration. The National Committee is going to continue this celebration in Beijing where some of you, some of the ambassadors will be joining us in early uh, January where we continue the celebration and then in March uh, to commemorate the opening of the embassies we'll be doing a program um, in Washington. Tonight's, the ambassadors have all been introduced in the years that they served, I won't repeat that. Tonight's um, format is very informal. I'm going to throw out some questions. 
They're going to answer. They can interrupt each other. They can interrupt me. I can interrupt them. Then we'll, we'll open the floor to the audience. We have a microphone, and because this is on C-SPAN, you will need to state your name and your affiliation and wait for the microphone. Um, and we will start in the order in which you serve. So we will start with Wynn Lord. And the first question is really to um, talk about the highlight and the low point of your time as ambassador. Now, I have to say, in Winston's case, I know what the highlight was. So I will, I will put that out. That is in 1988. He and I won the diplomatic doubles tournament in Beijing, which was clearly the highlight of Wynn's time in, in, uh, in Beijing. And it certainly was of mine, too. I think we won a, a, a trip to Dubrovnik. That's right, which we never took. Which we didn't take. We donated it to the embassy. Um, so, Wynn, let me turn it over to you, and then we'll go to Jim, State, Jim, and Joe. Well, that was going to be my highlight. Uh, Steve is so much better a tennis player than I am that when we talk about our partnership, I feel that the way Albania talked about its partnership with China during the Cold War, <laughs> in which Albania said, between us and China, we represent one quarter of the world's people. So, <laughs> so I'm the Albanian uh, in, this, uh, in this doubles team. Uh, I, too, would like to pay tribute to our predecessors who helped pave the way, also to the National Committee, which has done more than any other organization of a private nature to promote good relations ever since uh, the days of ping pong and is now flourishing under Steve's leadership. But one final grace note, I think it's very appropriate on this 30th anniversary to pay tribute to someone who literally has done more over a longer period of time to promote exchanges and friendship uh, between the United States and China uh, uh, unselfish rock of this committee, and I'd like her to stand and give her a tribute, and that's Jan Barris. <clears throat> now I'll go in staccato form uh, on the highlights, just a few specifics, namely welcoming the first U.S. Navy ships to China in 30 years, explaining the Super Bowl to hundreds of millions of mystified Chinese on Chinese uh, television, George Shultz's longest and by his account best trip he ever took, Secretary of State, being the first envoy to visit Tibet and hear uh, monks in gloomy uh, temples whispering the name uh, of the Dalai Lama, uh, a cane mutiny performance done in Mandarin, by the Chinese People Theater that had a rapturous reception produced by Shalton, uh, directed by Shalton Heston and produced by my wife, uh, Betty Ba Lord. So these are some of the specifics, but overall the highlight and the greatest challenge was to lay a broader base for U.S.-Chinese relations beyond the glue of the Cold War, namely the balancing of the Soviet Union. That still was at a fever pitch. It was in the last few years of the Cold War uh, we cooperated in surveillance posts along the Russian border. We shared intelligence. We helped to arm the resistance against the Soviets in Pakistan. Uh, we sold $800 million worth of arms to the Chinese during the late 80s. But this was not going to be enough for a sustainable relationship. We had to be for things, not just against them. 
uh, and even more so when it happened, uh, which we couldn't have predicted, of course, uh, the end of the Cold War, the fall of the Berlin Wall in 89 and 90, and of course, Tiananmen Square, the combination meant the anti-Soviet glue was gone and greater scrutiny of China's domestic uh, political system. And so I worked very hard, and I'd say the sustained highlight was broadening this base, greatly expanded by my successors, obviously, since then. But trade went way up, investment, uh, military exchanges, cabinet exchanges, science and technology exchanges, the Peace Corps. Uh, and so that was the most satisfying highlight. Finally, to cut this short, in terms of lowlights, one started even before I got there. Jesse Helms held up my nomination for several months, uh, meaning I couldn't get to China in time for the vice president's trip, and I couldn't get sworn in in time for my ailing father to see that. So I've always... Uh, that was a low light before I even began. Then a highlight slash low light was in the June of 1988, a year before Tiananmen, uh, meeting with Chinese students, uh, hundreds of them, <clears throat> what came to be known as Democracy Salon, and seeing their passion and their eagerness. Uh, that was a highlight, but a low light, and I can elaborate on this. A few days later, with Deng Xiaoping sending me a personal warning not to meet with Chinese students. And then the real low light was the visit of the newly elected President Bush, uh, an incident that many of you are familiar with, where the Chinese police uh, kept Fang Lejeur, a dissident, from attending the banquet, reneging on their promise to the president. And what made it worse, it was a terrific summit otherwise, uh, like Mrs. Lincoln and the play, I guess. But uh, that torpedoed the summit. Instead of trying to rescue that, uh, the National Security Advisor lied to the media about the history of it, instead of blaming the Chinese for the fiasco, blame me and the embassy. So that, that was clearly the low light. But I don't want to end on an ominous or depressing note. I'm optimistic about the relationship. I think you'll see continuity uh, in the new Obama administration, given its pronouncements and its personnel. And I think we will avoid the cycle that all of us have seen and some have experienced uh, with great poignancy of starting out administrations on a bad note with the Chinese, but finally ending up on a much better note. I think this will start out on a much more positive plane. Wynn, thanks. Jim? Yeah, I, I guess the high note was uh, represented by Shirley Guo, uh, Minister of Finance of Taiwan, attending the Asian Development Bank Conference in uh, Beijing in May of 1989. And we had worked to have China join the ADB and have Taiwan stay in with a name change. But I think this was symbolic of the uh, coming together of China and Taiwan, which we had started earlier with certain premises of support for Taiwan, both spiritually and materialistically. And then uh, being able to carry through our obligations in Beijing, as Winston mentioned, the Northwest sites and our military arrangements with them. And this was picked up, let's say, in the discussions of GATT, uh, which we had with the Chinese, which always included the admission of, of Taiwan and China, both under this similar arrangement. And I think we saw Taiwanese come to the Asian Games and treated with respect and came to see me, people I'd known there. Uh, but I would point out to you early on that I arrived in Beijing with a certain amount of baggage. I had served two and a half years in Taiwan as the American director of the American Institute. 
And we had had a so-called successful tour. Uh, as I said, both materially and spiritually, we were, gave them enough strength to open up to China in 87. I think that was an ingredient of this, although Zhang Jingguo decided he was going to do this on his own. And this moved ahead. And I would say this is a slow, evolving arrangement that took years and years to, to consummate. And we can see the results of it now in the election of Ma Zhou and the opening up and the resistance he faces. We, the problems never go away. And I would say that is a long-term positive effect. Negatively, I would say that it was uh, probably our lack of smarts in managing the media better because if they seize a certain situation where you get high emotions such as Tiananmen or other areas and they go for it. And I remember talking to Chen Qishan before I went to Shanghai to greet the ships coming in from the 7th Fleet, the Blue Ridge and Admiral Moors, that I t said to Chen Qishan, I think that if you make mistakes on this, they're going to go after your throat. And they went after my throat. So, I mean, it, it, it's, it colors things. It colors your diplomacy. It colors your perception in the states. It influences congressmen. It even, even influences the State Department. And I don't think we were quite tuned to the power of that and what it could do to a relationship. Uh, so I would say that was a low point. Steve? I've been thinking about your question, Steve. And from my perspective, of course, when Lord's time in Beijing was largely a series of high points. And in my case, it was a series of low points. I began my tour in Beijing uh, by meeting with the Chinese foreign minister, and I persuaded him to issue a visa to Congresswoman Nancy Pelosi, who during a rest period managed to go down to Tiananmen Square with the television crew and unfurl a human rights banner, <laughs> which brought her attention, presence in Beijing, to the attention of China's top leaders, who were not aware that she'd been given a visa, and literally... China's top leaders were screaming mad, and of course, I had created this problem. I ended my time in Beijing by informing the Chinese government that the president of Taiwan, whom we had assured them officially, extensively, would not be permitted to come to the United States, that we had reversed our position. In between, I tried to stretch out the low points so that I, I wouldn't be bored. In 1992, I had the honor of informing them that we were going to sell F-16 fighter aircraft uh, to Taiwan. And the next year, on instructions from Win Lord, who tried to keep me busy in Beijing, I informed the Chinese that we were going to link our trade privileges with China to their human rights behavior. Uh, but I offered them a way out by achieving seven fundamental improvements in human rights over the course of a year. Uh, which actually we made some progress on, uh, but perhaps not enough to fully remove the problem. What were the high points? One was it was impossible for senior American officials to visit China when I went there, partly because during Ambassador Lilly's very difficult period in Beijing, which he handled with extraordinary skill and dignity, uh, we had had some problems with the publicity that surrounded some of the high-level visits then. 
So it was important that we were able to get Secretary of State Baker to visit there, and then we were able to get the Secretary of Commerce, and later we got the Secretary of Defense and others. So the, by the time I left Beijing, we actually were in a situation where even when we had severe difficulties, we were able to have senior-level uh, U.S. officials meet with their Chinese counterparts. That was important. But I think my most significant accomplishment in China, of course, was getting China back onto the path of reform and openness. While the Chinese tend to take the credit for the 14th Party Congress' decision <laughs> to move back strongly onto the reform and openness path, since it occurred while I was in Beijing, I feel I am justified in citing that <laughs> as a high point in my time there. In any event, it immediately gave an enormous boost to U.S. business. And beginning in 1993, uh, U.S. trade with China and China's economic growth began on the strong upward path that has continued ever since. And uh, at least that occurred on my watch. Uh, what my role was, I will leave to history to decide. <laughs> so, Stape, we should hold you responsible for the trade deficit? Is that what you're telling me? <laughs> <laughs> it was very small when I was there. <laughs> Jim. Well, let me just, uh, Stape Roy was one of the most skillful and competent and effective diplomats that we ever had in Beijing. I think he undersells himself here. And as an example of how adroit he is, rumor has it that when he went to the Chinese to advise them we were selling F-16s to Taiwan, Stape couched it in these terms. He said, I want you to know that when and if Taiwan is reunited with the mainland, you'll have some wonderful F-16 <laughs> waiting for you there. Uh, when I, uh, I was also held up when by Senator Jesse Helms, and the most outrageous aspect of it was that I had served 18 years with Jesse. And uh, maybe he knew me too well. But in any case, uh, he held me up for three or four months along with 18 other ambassadors. And by the time I arrived in China, uh, Wynn had, uh, I mean, the state had been expecting me in June. And I finally got there in January the following year. Uh, relations were at a pretty low ebb. As Stape indicated, uh, we had told the Chinese from a very, very high level that we would not uh, give the leader of the Chinese authorities in Taiwan, Li Dongwei, a visa to come to the United States. And we did so. And the Chinese reacted uh, very, uh, very angrily, recalling their ambassador. So I arrived there at a very difficult moment. Uh, I would say that the high point of my service in China would be President Zhang Zemin's visit to the United States. His state visit, uh, I think it was 1997, if memory serves me correctly. We'd gone through some very, very difficult times trying to rebuild the relationship trying to get visits back and forth from a high-level a high, uh, high visitors. And as I said the other day, I wrote all of my old colleagues in the Congress a letter 
and invited them to come to China because I thought this would narrow the distance between our two countries and would also uh, perhaps overcome some of the biases they had. Well, to my horror, most of them came. We uh, were entertaining them constantly. At one time, we were entertaining Speaker of the House Newt Gingrich and Vice President Al Gore simultaneously. Uh, so so we, we were busy. But I remember very well we worked so hard on arranging Zhang Zemin's state visit to the United States, back and forth with our Chinese uh, interlocutors, working out this, working out that, et cetera, et cetera. We got to Hawaii, and uh, he spoke there at the governor's mansion. The Hawaiian police didn't do their work. You could hear demonstrators and bullhorns all during the dinner there. The president of China was embarrassed. I was embarrassed. But when we got to Washington, and I saw Zhang Zemin standing there on the White House lawn with President Bill Clinton, with the Marine Band there, the full diplomatic corps drawn up there, along with many of the most important members of the congressional delegation and the cabinet. Steve, that had to be a high point. And I guess the next high point was when President Clinton had a return visit to Beijing. To stand there on Tiananmen Square and see the stars and stripes snapping in the breeze and hearing the uh, People's Liberation Army band playing the Star Spangled Banner next to the Chinese national anthem. Now that was something that I will always remember. Low point. Well, we had some low points. Uh, <laughs> probably the lowest was uh, when uh, we erroneously and mistakenly bombed the Chinese embassy in Belgrade and tragically killed three of their diplomats. Chinese government uh, reacted very angrily. The students uh, at Beijing University were furious. They uh, marched on our embassy, broke all the windows, destroyed all the automobiles, and uh, this went on for three days and three nights before we finally got it, uh, got it behind us. I went home and found my wife crying, and I said, Dear, what's the matter? She said, My feelings have been hurt by 1.3 billion Chinese. <laughs> <laughs> so, but we, we survived it and came out of it, I think, pretty well as a result of all the work that had transpired before, and we left China and turned it over to my great friend, Admiral Prayer, who, who took it from there and did a great job. Joe. Turn. All yeah. right. Well, one of the things I've realized tonight, is, in addition to the kinship that uh, I have with my predecessors here, is we all went through Jesse Helms' Foreign Relations Committee to get, uh, <laughs> to get confirmed to go to China, and it was uh, always an interesting process. Uh, my, that particular time for me was enhanced, and I'd like to pay a tribute to friend Dan Inouye, who was one of my introducers in, in that thing. And then after he introduced me, he, he sat right behind me for the entire hearing as if, don't, don't pick on my guy here. And that stemmed from our time in Hawaii. But I, one of the bright spots, actually, if I can cheat a little bit, precedes 
the time I got to Beijing. And it's a segue from what Jim said about Jiang Zemin's first visit to the U.S. when he came through Hawaii. And I remember the night at Washington House there in Honolulu, and uh, the, the, the drum beat was free to bet outside. There were, people were yelling that out, outside the, the gates of uh, the Washington House. We had an outside dinner. And Jiang at that time leaned to uh, Ben Cayetano's wife. Ben was the governor of Hawaii at that time. And said, didn't we all act like that when we were young? <laughs> and so he, yeah, this, this is a real politician here. He's pretty going to be pretty good at that. But one other thing happened that has stuck with me and is instructive on that trip. Uh, we had had uh, another crisis in 96 when the, the mainland, when China shot some missiles in the Taiwan Strait in the vicinity of Taiwan, and we reacted with some ships. And at that time, I was in charge of the Pacific Command and when Jim was in Beijing. And uh, so we had no real way to talk to the Chinese military, which we did have with all the rest of the militaries in the Asia-Pacific region. And so with the President Clinton's engagement policy under that umbrella, we started to try to figure out how to talk to the PLA. And uh, I made some visits to Beijing. And in reciprocity, when President Zhang came to to Hawaii, I was a part of his host group along with Ben Cayetano. But we were out on the barge looking at the Arizona Memorial and he stuck his finger in my chest and said, Admiral, what are you trying to do talking to the PLA? And I said, Mr. President, we're trying to build some trust between us and the PLA so that we do not miscalculate, so that we don't have incidents that uh, flare up that don't need to, and we must have trust to do that. He said, you're right, except you're starting at the wrong place. He's, and he made the statement, before there can be trust, there has to be communications, then there has to be understanding, and then there can be trust. And so I think that's a, actually a pretty good pattern. And his further comment was, we are still working on communications. And I think to some extent, that's true, though I think we're nibbling in the understanding area and in some places trust between our nations now. Now, to get back to really what Steve asked us to do, the format to look at the time I was there, uh, the, I didn't have a lot of low points. You can see that one of the, you know, China's changed a lot from the 80s until I got there in 99. One of the things China has become is a have nation instead of a have not nation. And they had a, a lot of, uh, uh, they brought many uh, 200 to 400 million people out of poverty. They had done a lot of things of which they should be justifiably proud. But uh, so things were going pretty well, and we're trying to keep this thing together that had been building over the time that we had diplomatic relations and try to keep it going. Uh, right at the end of my time in Beijing was the event which I describe as a low point where we, there was a collision, which we could talk about a lot in the Q&A if you wanted to, but I'm not going to go into that much right now. But it occurred on April Fool's Day of 2001. It was a Sunday. And I would describe the low point when I got the word uh, through Michael Marine, who was the deputy chief of mission. He called me and said on the open line, we've had a collision 
off of Hanan Island and the Chinese plane is down, our plane is safely in Hainan. Uh, you know, the, my, my mind was racing as I tried to get back to work because I was out around, running around town at that time. And uh, the, the prospect of this collision, if it were not handled well by both countries, of it taking us back, probably, you know, certainly not to the Tiananmen level, but back to a stage where our, our relationship had moved back, you know, several years. Instead of moving forward, if it were not handled correctly, all that was racing through my mind, and I would describe that as, a, as probably the low point. And so we got busy and worked on that. Fortunately, I had a lot of high points, and mine are, are not cosmic. My, the ones I was thinking of for high points are, are sort of small events. One of them relates to uh, right after the, that low point, there were a lot of riots uh, or, or demonstrations, not riots, but demonstrations around Beijing. And getting back and forth to the embassy would always entail going through a bunch of people. And our driver was someone who, Mr. Xiao, who drove for other people as well. I called him Lao Xiao. He was a, a great, uh, great guy. And his, uh, his father had been incarcerated, but he had driven for one of the gang of four. So driving was a habit in, that, in this family. And uh, so, but when we get, came back to the embassy one time, there were a lot of uh, people out. Uh, I don't think there were too many. There were a lot of media people, but I don't think there were hostile American media there at that time. But uh, the, we, I couldn't get the door open. They, they were... Uh, you know, they were, they were clustered around the car so much we couldn't get out. And Lao Shao, who did not speak English in public, uh, said, stay there. And uh, so he came around and he fought his way around the car. And he came up and he's a, a diminutive man, but who always had a smile, always had a cheer. And this time he had a great big gash over his forehead and was, had blood dripping down his face, but still was smiling and said, come on, I'll get you through the crowd. And he was, a, he was a, not an employee of ours. He was a Chinese employee who worked for our embassy and for our, our household. But he, the, the fact that uh, we had that friendship, uh, that he had, he had taken that on, made me feel very close to him. And it's reflective of the way I think a lot of the developments between Americans and Chinese people go at the same time. There are some other highlights. Uh, one of them, we worked hard on WTO uh, during the time I was there. Then uh, we had the, finally got the WTO vote and brought China into the WTO, and that was a, a, a great event to move things forward, and, and maybe that's responsible for the trade deficit also, but I don't think, I don't think so. The, uh, another, another event that was a highlight is my predecessors had established the pattern of when there was a U.S. election, we would go rent a hall in a, in a local hotel and we'd stage a mock election. But well, we had the uh, 2001 Bush election uh, while we were there. And we were very concerned because of the time change that everything would be all over <laughs> by the time that we got the, by the time we got things going in Beijing. And, uh, it, it turned out not to be that way, but the and we, but we you know we had hamburgers and hot dogs and stands and, and a lot of people coming through as an education. We were trying to use it as an educational experience for the Chinese and for us as well. It was a lot of fun. 
But uh, a friend of mine who had become a friend, Di Bingo, who is, will be is here this week as well, was the worked for the, the international part of the Communist Party. And he had sent a group from the Communist Party school to come look at and monitor the election. And uh, so we, I met them and we walked around and looked at the stands and everything. And the election was in its later phases. And it was right after they, had, I think it was Florida that was withdrawn by CNN, I'm not, I believe. And uh, they said, what happened there? What happened there? How can they take a state back? I said, that's just the television. You can't get <laughs> And... Uh, and then, and then they, the, the thing that was uh, the humorous part was then they got, got me off the side and said, come on, you know who's going to win. Who's, 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 who's going to win this election? We know you know. And that was sort of, that was a highlight as well. <laughs> the, and then another one that's a, a, little, a little different, that uh, the Chinese phrase about the clouds are high and the emperor is far away is one that's my favorite. It's like being a long way from New York or Washington and, uh, or Beijing. And uh, the, the Nature Conservancy uh, in the U.S. Global uh, Conservation Group had a joint partnership with the Yunnan province, and they had what they called at that time the Great Rivers Project. And they, the fact that they, a NGO could have a joint venture with a province in China struck my fancy. I thought this is pretty good. But they had preserved an area about the size of West Virginia and trying to preserve the flora and the fauna in that area. And it's, it's for those of you who go to China, it's easy to go to Xi'an, Beijing, and, and uh, go to the place in Shanghai, go to more popular places, but out there near the little town of Lijiang in that area is just absolutely gorgeous. It's much like the Grand Tetons in our country, and it's a, it's a great space to go. So that, that uh, partnership, which has continued, uh, was, uh, was really great. There's one other, one other thing, if I can take just a moment of time, that made me very proud, was when we were working through the EP3 Chinese F8 collision issue. The the people in the Foreign Service in the embassy, and uh, I'll, I'll mention three names, Jim Moriarty, who is now our ambassador to Bangladesh and was ambassador to Nepal and was previous to that was in the NSC, uh, and John Alwisi, who just left the State Department a few, few days ago, and uh, Ken Jarrett, who is the uh, general counsel, I mean the con until I've gotten in business, General Counsel, <laughs> the, uh, the Consul General in, uh, in Shanghai. And, and the, the people in the embassy came together so well and worked so much as a team. There's not a lot of bench strength. I mean, you don't have shifts like you do in the Navy to work 24 hours a day. So the people in the embassy worked very hard. Our Chinese counterparts, uh, my negotiating counterpart was Zhou Wing Zhang, who is uh, now the ambassador to the U.S., they were working equally hard trying to, trying to get at solving this problem. But the embassy team just did a, a great job during that period, and that was, that was certainly a highlight for me, too. Wonderful answers. I, I, it feels like we've taken a walk down 30 years of U.S.-China relations, and it really is a testimony to the fabulous, really fabulous answers.
let's bring it forward briefly, and and um, and it won't be George W. Bush, but we will have a new ambassador named, and who knows how long it will take to confirm. Some point, you know, in the next few months. What, with all your experience, he or she will be good. Absolutely. <laughs> um, hopefully, up to the quality of the pre of all of you. Um, what piece of advice would you give the new ambassador? What one piece of advice would you give the new ambassador besides keep his tennis game up? By the way, Fareed Zakaria said it's the most important appointment above Secretary of State and Defense and everything else that this president will make. I think we would all agree with that. <laughs> my, my one piece of advice is do not succumb to clientitis. You're representing the United States, not China. Promote good relations. But be firm when you have to, as well as being positive and engaging. Jim? Well, it seems rather presumptuous to give a man like Obama and company uh, advice on what to do about China, since the track record has not been above reproach. I, I would say, by the way, uh, I was one guy that did, had no problem with Jesse Helmsen being confirmed. <laughs> <laughs> My problem came from John Kerry. <laughs> he said, young man, he was 10 years younger than I was, a young man, uh, do you put democracy or security first? That's quite a question. Yeah. <laughs> anyway, uh, I would say that a, a tour is always interesting to stress the high points and the low points, as you did. But it seems to me in a tour you try to change overall trends. And what, what do I mean by that? Uh, if you get into a situation at Tiananmen where the relationship hits rock bottom, you try to reestablish that relationship. And there are several components we're dealing with the Chinese are rather tortuous and long and uh, distorted by media coverage. But you push ahead and you get that done so that when Fan Lijer leaves, you begin working on the things that are important, the scientific and technology agreement, the nanjing sice agreement, the education agreement, the GATT, WTO agreements. These things you start up again, resuming Fulbright, XM loans, that sort of thing. You do that because both sides made mutual concessions over a long period of time. It took, I'd say, almost a year to get to that point. Then you go into the point where you try to propel yourself into the future and give the people that come down the pike from you a better situation. And this involves, it seems to me, pushing ahead on the particular areas that you've already tried to move ahead on. But then, beginning with Jim Baker and others in the fall of 90, to establish a new agenda for the United States-China's relationship. Before it had been Taiwan technology in the Soviet Union. Baker came up after they'd allowed Chen Chichun to see the president, which was very important to him. We stress human rights. Dick Shifter's going to go over there. We stress proliferation of weapons of mass destruction. Reg Bartholomew is going to deal with you on this and your adherence to the missile technology control regime. And three, Massey's going to talk to you about GTO. This is the new agenda that we're pushing. Trade, proliferation, and human rights. That lasted about one year. But for the first time, I saw the Americans actually beginning to turn around the 
agenda for the relationship. And they went along with it. So I would say that working in a time frame of several years, you try to break out of the morass and then you try to push ahead with the programs you think are really worth pushing. In our case, it seemed rather specific that we pushed these things and the Chinese were agreeable to it. So that's a long-winded answer saying that there is no particular advice I would give him. Play for the long term. Get somebody over there who thinks in terms of your thinking, Obama, that understands the Chinese thinking and draws a synthesis, as Winston says, loaded in the direction of the United States because that's the country we represent. What I would normally say to somebody going to China uh, is, first, be yourself. Don't try to simply be a reproduction of your predecessors. Uh, in my case, I went there with this feeling that my predecessors had done superb jobs under very difficult conditions. But I really believe ambassadors are most effective when they play to their own strengths and when they try to control their weaknesses and not let them dominate their behavior. So that if you're good at entertaining or if you're good at policy discussions or if you're good at getting members of Congress over, which Ambassador Sasser was superb at, uh, which I didn't have a very good track record on, uh, play to your strength. That's number one. Number two, you have to retain the confidence of your government. And you can only be effective in dealing with the Chinese government if they recognize that you are a reliable representative of your government's viewpoints. This gets to win the Lord's point about you can't demonstrate clientitis because you'll lose the confidence of your own government and that means your effectiveness with the Chinese will be limited. Third, you must be able to demonstrate to the Chinese government and to the Chinese people that you truly believe in the importance of the relationship and that you will use your best efforts to try to solve problems and improve the relationship. The Chinese need to believe, and this applies to foreign ambassadors in Washington as much as it does to foreign ambassadors in Beijing. The representative of your country must be somebody that the Chinese feel they can come to to get assistance in dealing with a difficult issue in the bilateral relationship. Otherwise, they will bypass you and use other channels to your government, and you will lose your effectiveness. So you really need to show that you believe in what you are doing and that you want to try to get the relationship onto the right track. Uh, let me give an example, which was not due to my credit necessarily, but I referred earlier to my first experience with Nancy Pelosi when she was in Beijing. She came back to Beijing a couple of years later. The Chinese let her back in. She had a very successful visit. She behaved with great dignity. Uh, and this is an example of a... I give credit to the Chinese government. They had truly been angry at her first visit there, but they recognized that she was an important member of Congress and that it was better to let her come back in. So I think governments need to behave with the same sense of the importance of these relationships and the representatives of government need to display the same dedication and determination to try to keep the relationship on the right track. Steve, I don't know that I can add a lot to what's already been said except two or three things. One, 
Well, never let a former senator have the floor. <laughs> Will the gentleman yield the remainder no. of his time? <laughs> but I think it's important that, number one, I would tell the new ambassador, keep a sense of humor and don't take yourself too seriously. Number two, I would tell him or her that you're accredited to what may very well be and probably will be, if not the most important, one of the most important countries of the 21st century. And you have an obligation to work diligently to try to, try to build a relationship that's to the mutual benefit of both countries. And number three, I would tell them to build trust with your interlocutors in the Chinese foreign ministry. Never shade the truth and never tell an untruth. And if you can't disclose, just be quiet. And um, so the most important thing, I think, is trust and maturity and keeping a sense of humor. Yeah. Joe? Well, I really can't add much. <laughs> <laughs> the, uh, I, I think the advice that is given is, uh, is extremely sound. So a lot of it applies to situations other than being ambassador to China. The, the only other ad I would have is that uh, the ambassador should remember that it's a team sport. It is not, uh, you know, you're, you, you, you're a point person there. It's right. you're, you're an important person, but it's a team sport. There are a lot of people working on it. The whole... Uh, an ambassador's authority stems from a two-page letter that the president signs, and it's over uh, commerce, it's over defense, it's, it's over everything the executive department controls in China, and that's a big team. And they all need to be pulling on the same oar and be, have a consistent uh, dialogue that is consistent with what the nation's message is. And uh, that's an important thing to remember as well. When each of you were ambassador, there wasn't this strategic economic dialogue. You know, we didn't have a cabinet officer with many other cabinet officers meeting with a Chinese vice premier. Um, the Obama administration is, by all accounts, evaluating whether and in what form the strategic economic dialogue should continue. The question is, from the point of view of the ambassador, should it continue? And if it should continue, in what form and who should lead it? Well, I think it definitely should continue, or you may tweak the form. But the basic principle of recognizing the mutual interdependence and the strategic significance of Chinese and American economies, of getting all the ministers in the room at the same time so you don't have the stove-type problem, and to talk in long-term directions, which will mean China looking more like us and we looking more like China, about that shorthand, I won't get into details, uh, while trying to make some progress on short-term issues so you have domestic support, I think it's crucial. But I would go beyond that. It's not just in economics. In terms of leading it, I'd leave that up to uh, Obama. But I would think in the economic area would, would be the Secretary of the Treasury. 
But beyond that, and Jim put his finger on it, the key challenge in our relations with China is to have this strategic relationship, not in terms of a military alliance, but in terms of two major powers, an emerging major power and an established one, talking in conceptual and strategic and broad terms so we have an agenda beyond the inevitable frictions that are going to arise on human rights in Taiwan and Tibet and trade and so on. Uh, and therefore, not only should the economic dialogue continue, we ought to continue and expand even further what the Bush administration has done well on, namely the Deputy Secretary of State dialogue on regional and global issues. Right. And to the extent we can, on a military level, to get at each other's intentions, even though it's going to be tough to carry that as far as some of the others. And it's important to do this for three reasons, beyond just the inherent importance of uh, the two countries. First, a lot of these problems, whether it's global warming or whether it's terrorism or whether it's Korea or Iran, either can't be solved or be much more difficult without the cooperation of our two countries. Secondly, engaging on these issues builds up constituencies supporting the relationship on both sides of the Pacific and strengthens the fabric of the overall relationship. And thirdly, it puts in context as I said, these inevitable tensions so that our domestic public, which tends to see in the media the problems, like human rights in Taiwan, et cetera, can see that there is a major positive reason to engage China on this strategic level. So I'm embroidering a little bit your question, but I think it applies not only to economics, but to the diplomatic and the military areas as well. Should it be combined with the senior dial? In other words, the Dai Bingguan Negroponte senior dialogue, no, the deputy secretary no, I, I and the state counselor. I think it gets too broad an agenda if you do that. Now, it's got to be combined in the overall relationship, but that's up to the president. Jim? Well, I, I think that the strategic economic dialogue that was started by Paulson way back in, what, November 06 is probably the most significant move that's been made by this administration in terms of China policy for, for two basic reasons. One is the show of power in terms of six cabinet secretaries go over there and the Chinese come here with Wang Shishan and there, there is that marvelous era of face and uh, diplomacy that starts this off. But underneath that, even more important to me is switching the emphasis from military strategy to economic strategy. It almost foresaw the problems we're running in today in a sense that Paulson, who was there when it started in Wall Street, he's there when it's in Washington, and he's now there when it's in China. And he's working with the Chinese on, Chinese on cooperative organizations and cooperation such as economic cooperation, energy cooperation, counter-pollution, counter-piracy, all these issues that we can work with the Chinese on. But even more important than that, that we work with the Chinese is the spillover of this in two critical so-called flashpoints in Asia. One is the Korean Peninsula, the other is Taiwan, China. Everybody talks about these as potential flashpoints and some of us have good reason to think that. But in Korea, I would say that your economic factor gets at the Achilles heel of North Korea. You can't really fight them in terms of their military and their strategic weapons. You can work at curtailing it, but the real vulnerability of that regime is its economic vulnerability. Okay. 
And that is where the Chinese are putting their emphasis and where the South Koreans are putting their emphasis. And you can see that the North Korean pathological concern about the intrusions from the South and from the West. They're losing it. And they're fighting very hard to maintain it based on insecurity because economic power is what they really can't handle. In Taiwan, we've had carriers, we've had live fire exercises, we've had missiles fired in 95, 96. The big push now is economic integration between Taiwan and China. That is the most powerful force in cross-strait relations. It dwarfs the military component. Okay, so the Chinese have a thousand missiles. We sell arms to Taiwan. This gets in the way. But the real drive is the million Taiwanese in China, the hundred billion dollars of investment, Chinese uh, information technology industry. In effect, Taiwan probably controls 50% of it. That is the drift of the future. That is happening in Guangzhou, it's happening in Shenzhen, it's happening in Shanghai, in various places. They're talking about it. My problem is we don't know what they're saying to each other. As an old intelligence hack, this burns me. We don't know what they're dealing. What do the Chinese demand from the Taiwanese in terms of, let's say, renovating the fort of, port of Liangang? What do they and what do the Taiwanese demand from them? Security guarantees for their investment? Five, ten years? What sort of guarantees? Written? Spoken? What is the, what is the deal? That, to me, is, an, is a gap that we don't know about, and this is critical, I think, for war and peace in the Taiwan Strait, and it has an economic base. State? I agree completely with Jim, but I think the establishment of the senior economic dialogue was not only an extremely important policy move, but was extremely timely. Because when the economic crisis began to hit us in full force, our economic financial officials, not simply at the Paulson level, but way down in the bureaucracies, had better working relationships with their Chinese counterparts than they'd ever had before. They were in a position to pick up the telephone and call their counterparts and discuss it. So that as the crisis developed, and clearly there was a major impact on China because it held so many uh, dollar uh, securities, the Chinese were actually kept well informed of the moves that Paulson was taking to deal with the crisis because we had easy channels of communication. We need to broaden those channels of communication much more. Quite frankly, the U.S. government spends much too much time on what I would call bureaucratic paperwork and not nearly enough time developing the relationships with foreign governments that you need to be able to manage crises effectively. If you take Southeast Asia as an example, Southeast Asia could be a Balkans region. It's a hodgepodge of different religions, of different ethnic groups. They've been fighting for millennia with each other, and yet it's been a region that has been able to manage their differences because when they formed the Association of Southeast Asian States, they began a practice of frequent meetings among all of the government departments at all levels. So in every government in Southeast Asia, people right down to the director level know their counterparts in the other governments. We are much deficient in this respect. We don't cultivate important countries like China 
where it's vitally important to get the relationship right and know the people. When you don't know people, you can believe any devil theory about what they may be like. When you know them, you can discount a lot because you simply know they're not that type of person. So I really do believe that this was an important step, and I hope it will be kept up in whatever form in the Obama administration. So you see it as enhancing relationships of the 1,100 people in the United States Embassy now. Oh, absolutely. In other words, it's it doesn't you know it's yeah. not a question of yeah. the Chinese say well we'll just wait right. for the SED we don't have to talk to the Treasury rep or the Commerce rep at, in the embassy. No, it enhances it greatly, and I want to pick up on a point that Joe Preer, uh, Admiral Preer, made. One of the exciting things about being an ambassador in a post like Beijing is something you can never see in Washington, which is the entire U.S. government, all the different departments of government, working as a coherent team, cooperating with each other to advance the U.S. interest. In Washington, you tend to get bogged down in the bureaucratic infighting among departments. In your embassies abroad, frequently, you have a unified effort in which people are all working together. It's quite exciting to be an American and see that type of an operation, and Joe is absolutely right. The ambassador may have the biggest office, but it's the staff that is really carrying the burden of the daily business. Jim? Steve, I think, uh, yes, um, it should be continued, and I'm going to do my best to try to persuade anybody I know on the transition team or in the Obama organization to continue it. I would have this caveat on it, however. It needs to be chaired by someone of significant prestige and clout in the administration. Now, Paulson uh, is an unusual Secretary of the Treasury. I think we would all agree that he's probably, if not the paramount figure in the cabinet, certainly one of the paramount figures. So I would not say that, principally, that this always has to be chaired by the Secretary of the Treasury. In fact, I would like to see it expanded. We've got so many other problems that we need to deal with with China. Climate change, pollution, uh, energy problems, et cetera, et cetera. It goes on and on. And I would like to see this dialogue that Paulson has initiated expanded almost into all, almost a G2 relationship. And uh, I've thought that uh, perhaps this ought to be something that maybe the vice president should even chair uh, because I, I do believe it's that important. And, and I think our Chinese uh, counterparts will react if we have someone of status and prestige in our administration that's actually running the show. And if someone uh, becomes chairman who's of a lesser status, then I think they'll probably downgrade it themselves. But certainly it ought to be continued and expanded. If the Vice President shared it with the Chinese upgrade up to the Premier's level? Well, I don't know. I mean, that would be up to the Chinese to yeah. decide. Um, <laughs> Joe? Uh, I'll continue the theme of what's been said and, and basically see you and raise you one on this. Uh, the, it, certainly, it is the, the key dialogue that's going on right now, but it's, it's not sufficient in itself. And the, uh, 
one of the one of the challenges is in Washington, the to get the various cabinet and 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 departments to talk to each other well is an important thing to solve and have our own skirts clean before we start exporting this model to and talking to other people and that needs you know that always needs work it requires steady work there are other models with uh, countries like Australia we have a thing called the Osmans which is security oriented which is uh, Department of State the Secretary of State and the Secretary of Defense alternate with uh, Australia but the the point that uh, Wynn made and others have made too is that the solutions lie actually in a broader area it needs to be a broader strategic, you know, comprehensive strategic dialogue, not just economics, but economics is a key, a key piece of it. And how that gets orchestrated is a challenge. But I think that the, a point that Wynn made is that the issues that we have in the world of uh, AIDS, of pollution, economics, uh, disease, health care, all the things... These things are uh, environmental issues are not going to yield to solutions without at least having China and the U.S. pulling on the same oar to try to solve these problems. So something like the strategic economic dialogue is an expanded version of it is vital, I think. Seems a consensus on that issue. I had promised to open the floor to questions. And even though I have another dozen questions, I will live up to my word and open the uh, put up your hand, wait for a microphone, and please identify yourself and the affiliation. This is such an intimidating panel that we've got no one here, over here. Hi, uh, respectful five ambassadors, I'm Elizabeth Chen from a law firm in New York. And I have two questions. Hope you can pick up one at least. The first one is, what was your, the culture shock you have encountered when um, you served in the position as ambassador you know, in China or you're staying in China? I noted that at least two of you were born in China. Maybe you have encountered more or less culture shock. And the second one is, when it comes to the end of the term, do you feel, oh, thank God, it comes over <laughs> finally. Oh, you feel, what a pity. I hope I can serve for a second term. That's my two questions. Well, I'll take it on very quickly. I didn't have any culture shock. I wasn't born in China, but I was married to a woman born in Shanghai. And uh, she literally was my interpreter, literally in many ways, but certainly uh, figuratively. And we were a real team, so I was extremely lucky and, frankly, had been enmeshed in Chinese culture through her and her family. So that was a tremendous asset for me. The other one being timing, because I got there after the early Taiwan tensions uh, with early Reagan years, solved by the 1982 communique, and I left just as Tiananmen was erupting, leaving that to my poor successor to inherit. So my timing was a very good one indeed. Uh, no, it was the best job I ever had. I suspect... Yeah. My colleagues have all had very distinguished assignments, my degree. I'll leave it up to them. But uh, I loved it there. I, I, I was ready to come back for some personal reasons, uh, and I've been there four years, but it was the best assignment I ever had. Well, culture shock. Uh, let's say 
my background is I was in CIA for a number of years, and I worked against China during the Korean War, and, and uh, they understood that. Uh, and I came, and I always remember a party at the Great Wall Sheraton that the correspondents gave, and they had pictures of Tiananmen on the wall, and they were playing the Beatles music behind it, sad music. And they got to the bar and they started boozing it up. And the Chinese bartenders were listening. And they said, you know, Lily's here. He's going to take that guy out of here in a box and get him out. Or he's going to dress him up as a woman and get him out of here, Fang <laughs> Two days later, I get a call from the foreign ministry. If you think you're going to take that man out in the Halloween party, forget it. <laughs> And so when we had the Halloween party, they had people all around us with AK-47s <laughs> watching us trying to smuggle this guy out. And my colleague, Don Kaiser, said to me, you know, if we have an Easter party, we're going to get him out as the Easter bunny. <laughs> anyway, th there was a certain amount of culture separation there uh, about what they thought what we could do or we were capable of doing. And their judgment of what we were going to. But in, in the end, we understood that they would require that this man, Fang Lijer, leave China under legal procedures that they would control, namely passport exit permit. And I remember taking him to the airport, and I was under instructions to stay with him. And as we got to the airport, and the C-141 was out here, and we went into their cabin, their, their little hut there, and they wanted to take him down this corridor and have him check out. And I started going with them, and they said, no, this is Chinese territory. So you have a decision to make. Are they going to grab him? Or can you have trust in them to do this thing? Well, I uh, decided I wasn't going to ram myself through. They checked him out, and they sent him back. We put him on the plane, and he went. To England. It was a three-cornered shot. Things don't often have happy endings because he gets off the plane and the first thing he does is to badmouth President George Herbert Walker Bush, uh, which I never forgave him for. I don't know why he did that after we'd spent all this time to get him out, send him to England six months there and send him off to Princeton. Maybe that was the price we made him pay, Stape. They send him to Princeton. Uh, <laughs> Uh, yeah, <laughs> but anyway, <clears throat> he, he he went to Arizona, and uh, these things have a way of right. What I find is these things have a long tenure of working themselves out. Whether it's you start at a low point and you end up at a reasonable point, uh, that's your objective is to move things in the right direction. And there's a, it's punctuated by incidents, such as this bar talk and uh, with the correspondence. It, ends up in kind of a ridiculous confrontation. Uh, the other confrontation I remember having, and where there's a certain cultural gap, is they had a sniper on top of Jiangamen Wai, which is nine stories high, and it stretches for a block. And we knew from a very effective assistant military attaché that they were going to fire on that complex the next morning at 10 o'clock. He knew from the Chinese and we pulled everybody out and had a meeting. And lo and behold, they did fire right at that uh, 
building complex. And one of the IEs pushed our two little girls were left there, pushed them on the ground, and the bullets soared in right over her head. When I was called in after this leak to the London Daily Telegraph, uh, they said, don't you know there was a sniper there? I pulled my military expertise, and I said, I was a private in the Army, and I understand a little bit about gunfire, and I know that you don't fire from this point to this point to get a man at this point. If that firing, which was parallel, had come in from the other side, I wouldn't be sitting here today if they were standing there. Uh, there are times when you are pushed to the wall by misunderstandings of what we think. That we really would accept their idea that you could close the door and beat the dog. And that you could get away with this sort of thing at Gentleman Y. But as things moved on, as we got through these difficult times, it seems that towards the end, again and again, I saw evidence that they were really, in some way, sympathetic with us. You remember this horrible creature, Yuan Mu? Yeah. <laughs> the Chinese had a, a, a statement about him. I've heard about this out in Chengdu, Sichuan, and they had a poem based on Deng's thing, uh, Black Cat, White Cat, Longs It Catches Mice, Good Cat. They had ground wood, square wood. As long as it makes, as long as it makes coffins, it's good wood. Ground wood is Yuan Mu's name. <laughs> you see, and, and they did this, and when he came in, and we have a meeting with Tenji and some of the good guys at a dinner party, he walks in, and it's, oh, the Red Sea parted. Nobody talked to him. And very soon after that, he, he disappeared. Uh, a really obnoxious person. Their system took care of it. He Xin, he Xin was their early guy that began to take on the United States and began to sow the seeds of anti-Americanism. And in the spirit of wide open friendship to everybody in China, we invited him to a reception. He came. This guy that really is giving us a hard time. Nobody talked to him. I mean, it, it was it was a different period. I think State and, and Jim Sass and others worked this thing from a different angle. But in our situation, we were looking for friends. And it seems to me we had more friendship out there that was real. Uh, certainly when I came in and the car would fly around with the American flag, the students would go like this at me. I never got that in Korea, believe me. <laughs> it was this I got, or variations thereof. Okay. And uh, <clears throat> they, they were quite unfriendly, and the government was quite friendly. And in China, at yeah. least during the Tiananmen period, they were quite forthcoming. Okay, and that always gave us... Okay. <laughs> Let's move on. Okay. <laughs> they... <laughs> I'm like Jim Lilly. I'm one of the uh, two of us up here uh, who was actually born in China. So culture shock wasn't the difficulty in going to China. Uh, the problem for me has been what I would call development shock. China has been developing over the last 30 years at such a pace that the country is literally different if you spend several years out of it. And when you go back, you are shocked to see how rapid the change has been. 
that's the area that I have found uh, difficult. If you don't keep going back to China, you really are out of touch with the place. I've never lived in a country, including my own, where the pace of development has been so rapid uh, uh, as it has been in the case of China. Uh, what about leaving China? The answer is there are many jobs that you can be assigned to in the Foreign Service or in other places in the military where you have to work very hard but you're not you don't have the sense you're doing really important work. In the case of China no matter how good or bad the relationship was, you always had the sense that you were dealing with an issue that had a major relationship to U.S. national interest and national security. So the answer is you basically want to serve in China as long as you can play a useful role there. Uh, you don't want to just hang on, but you don't want to get out of the job necessarily. You want to keep doing it because it's very important work and it's a luxury to have a chance to work hard on something important. Well, Steve, I suppose the, uh, like a lot of Westerners who go to China or to other uh, countries where the culture is so different, uh, the first shock, I think, is some of the food, to be quite frank. <laughs> Uh, I never really developed a taste for for fried scorpions. Now, I I never developed a taste for sea slugs, but I am confident. But I've seen my Chinese friends come to the United States, and I think they have some of the same problems with scrambled eggs in the morning and that sort of thing that uh, I had early on uh, with Chinese food. Additionally, uh, getting into a a crowded Chinese area, an airport terminal sometimes when there's just not enough space and uh, everybody is pushing uh, probably more than I'd experienced uh, here in the United States. And those are sort of day-to-day uh, -day things that uh, you quickly overcome. But other than that, uh, I, I really didn't have any culture shock. Uh, as to whether or not uh, I wanted to leave, uh, I was there uh, three and a half years. Uh, I had told the Clinton administration I would go for two. And every time we started to leave, there would be some pressing issue that had to be dealt with. And, uh, uh, but I enjoyed my service in China immensely. Uh, as a matter of fact, I asked to go to China. Uh, after I left the Senate, uh, President Clinton called me up and he said, uh, do you want to stay in government? And I said, absolutely not. <laughs> and uh, he said, well, how about an ambassadorship? I said, I'm not interested except maybe China. And he, I got a call back about two weeks later from then Vice President Gore, and he said, well, you still interested in going to China? And I said, yes. He said, well, it's a done deal. Or as any deal is done around this damn place. Talking, <laughs> talking about the White House. So that's how I ended up in China. And uh, I thought it was a terrifically interesting and valuable and satisfying experience. And uh, at the end of three and a half years, 
I thought I'd probably exhausted what effectiveness I had, Steve, and so I was ready to leave. But I felt like we'd done some good work there and uh, left some good things behind us. Joe? Well, like Jim Sasser, I grew up in Tennessee, and I've been to three county fairs and a hog calling contest, and so I don't have any culture shocks. So that's a <laughs> but, uh, no, seriously, the, uh, a, a culture shock the first time you go to China, particularly when you're you know, exposed to the upper leadership, is you sit down with a, in, in the case, our case, uh, Zhang Jimen, and here's a guy that's the president of a country of 1.3 billion people, has a lot of moving parts, a lot of, lot of issues, uh, very difficult to govern, very difficult to govern even under good circumstances. And the, there, is, there is a little bit of a, uh, the, the first time I'd done it before I got to be ambassador, but uh, to go to the Great Hall of the People and uh, go through Tiananmen Square for the first time, is, a, is an awe-inspiring experience to do for, for someone to do that the first time. The, uh, so the, the, the food issue is there. Jim didn't talk about Mao Tai or some of the other well, traits that we have that, that, uh, that, uh, that, that help ease the culture. But uh, they, they other, to the other point about leaving, I, I, I very much agree with State. Uh, the, the work there is important. Uh, you, every, everything that you get into, it's, I mean, you don't, not every pencil you push is important, but the, but the work is very important. It's, uh, most of us like to, like to do things that are, that are that way. It's difficult to leave any time you go. And I think there are, you know, you get tired. The circumstances Jim had, it got, he got ridden pretty hard there toward the end of it, and you, get, you can get worn out, and you can get physically tired, but uh, it's, a, it's, a, it's a difficult spot to leave. And probably that's true, but I think it's more so as you build a relationship that's so important in our world right now, and I think all of us feel that way, that it's, uh, it's, it's hard to leave. Okay, time for another question right here. Um, maybe we, can, maybe we need a... Uh, Is Mabel Chan with ABC News. Um, just reflecting on 30 years of normalization of U.S.-China relations and also your personal experience in China, what, can, what should China learn from the United States? What's the most important thing that China should learn from the United States? And what's the most important thing that the United States should learn from China? And why is that? Uh, we want to just have one. We'll have we'll just to get some to some more questions. Quick. We'll just have one one answer, one answer from one ambassador. Uh, we, we should learn from China a sense of a long-term view uh, and strategic concept, and they have that in spades. They've ever had it ever since I first went there in the early 70s. Another reason I didn't have culture shock is I've been in many trips before with Nixon, Kissinger, and Ford, and so on. Uh, what China should learn from us, frankly, is the value of a democratic system. We can't impose it. We shouldn't be arrogant. It's got to come from within China, from the bottom up. And it doesn't mean you insist on multi-party democracy within a few years. But you've got to have elements of the rule of law, freedom of the press. If you want to get at corruption, uh, if you 
don't want babies to die from tainted milk. Uh, and therefore, I do think it's in China's self-interest, both for economic progress, for political stability, relations with us and with Taiwan, uh, to promote a freer society. Next question. Seymour uh, Topping, journalist. Uh, thank you very much for a very illuminating uh, discussion. In the course of your discussion, there have been uh, one or two sort of brief asides to uh, the press and the media, if I may say so, not entirely flattering. <laughs> uh, and uh, uh, I wonder if going back to the post-World War period, uh, say 45, 46, up until the present, what has been the, non, the net contribution or non-contribution uh, of the press uh, to understanding uh, China on behalf of the American people. I have volunteers for that one, Steve? Yeah, let, let me take that one. Uh, I think in general our press does a very good job. Uh, there was a superb group of U.S. journalists in Beijing on both of my assignments there, and I thought they were really dedicated people who worked hard. But in 1993, the perception of China in the United States with our free press was about as far off the mark as I've ever seen in nearly 45 years in the diplomatic service. It was a situation where a free press, because of the demand for certain types of news stories, was feeding up stories that presented the negative side of China so that in 1993, after China had gone back onto the reform and openness path following Tiananmen, I have never encountered so much shock on the part of American visitors, including China specialists, including CEOs of major corporations, including ordinary tourists, at finding the situation in China so different from the image of China that was being pervaded in the United States. I would discuss this openly in my regular meetings with the American Press Corps, and they described the factors that caused them to write the types of stories that were not giving the accurate picture to Americans. Their editors didn't want the types of stories that dealt with the economic progress and things like that. If they wrote about the human rights problems, they got page one treatment. So I have to say that these were truly good professionals, but this was a situation where the way that the market for news in the United States operated we had as distorted a vision of China as when I served in the Soviet Union, I saw a controlled press present of the United States. And I lived for four years in the Soviet Union, seeing my country completely misrepresented to the Russian people. How about today, Steve? Today, I think we're doing much better. And one of the advantages of our free media is that even when we're presenting a distorted view, there are always elements that are presenting a different viewpoint so that we are not limited to only one view. But you do get a dominant view. Uh, to give you one key example, in the two years after Tiananmen, you couldn't find a reference to China on U.S. television that didn't have the picture of the student standing up to the thing. Now, that's no more accurate or a way of presenting a news story than presenting somebody in an embarrassing situation every time you refer to his name. It creates a negative image, and it shouldn't have been done. It was an act of non-professionalism by the U.S. media 
and that's the type of thing that we should try to avoid. I think right now we have a much more balanced way of looking at China and therefore a much more accurate perception of the strengths and weaknesses of what's going on in China. Uh, time for one last question. Back here. Hi, I'm Henry Tang, and the five of you are all good friends of mine. I guess the one question um, that needs to be asked is to ask all of you to uh, look into your crystal balls and um, give us your um, forecast or impressions of how the Xinjiang and Tibetan situation might dilemma might get uh, resolved, and should it happen with or without Western and American participation? Any volunteers for that one? <laughs> I'll take the, t the Tibet one. I'm very pessimistic. Uh, the Dalai Lama has announced independence at considerable political risk. He continues to be vilified. The dialogue has broken off. The Chinese have calculated that when he dies and his Nobel Laureate with his prestige is no longer on the scene. They picked their own Dalai Lama. This issue will disappear. Uh, the answer is Chinese sovereignty, but some greater autonomy for cultural and other reasons within that sovereignty. But the current Chinese leadership has stiffed the Dalai Lama at its own risk because of violence we've seen. But I'm very pessimistic, and I don't see any change in that situation for the foreseeable future. Anyone? One last comment on Xinjiang. Any volunteers? Uh, I, I, yes, I would like to comment on the issue of should the foreigners get involved. The answer is, if we think that foreigners could come into the United States and take some sensitive issue here, whether it's race relations or whether it's something else, uh, treatment of the Indian tribes on their reservations, what have you, if we think they can come in here and be helpful in solving those problems, then certainly we ought to get involved in, in solving China's domestic problems. But I don't think foreigners could do a good job in the United States, and I think that foreigners will totally mishandle it if we try to get involved in working out the solution. But the fact is, China throughout its history has had difficulties in its minority areas. That's what it's all about. I was just uh, watching the movie Mongol, which had to do with one of the historic problems for China in dealing with its border areas. And we find that that pattern hasn't ended. China still has difficulties in satisfying the people who live in its minority border areas, and therefore that's an issue which the Chinese government needs to pay attention to and which the minorities themselves need to pay attention to in finding the right way to deal with a big, powerful civilization such as China. They can't escape it. They have to find ways to get along with it. Are you saying we should not raise this issue with the Chinese no. and encourage dialogue with the Dalai Lama? No. Uh, I'm saying that we shouldn't try to get involved in trying to solve the problem. That's different than encouraging dialogue with the Dalai Lama. What I'm saying, Wynn, is, is, is not that different from what you're saying. I'm saying that there is a problem there, but it's a problem that the Chinese need to work out. I think that our advice on telling them how to work it out is probably no better than the advice foreigners would give us in terms of trying to work out our domestic problems. That doesn't mean we'll stop doing it, but I honestly think that we're not going to be helpful in the solution unless the Chinese and the minorities themselves get serious about trying to find a better way to deal with the problems. Or does our intervention yeah. make the situation worse? Uh, I've often thought that simply 
us focusing the attention on it, uh, on Tibet or Xinjiang, and us lecturing the Chinese about it or trying to persuade them one way or the other uh, makes the situation worse. It raises their hackles. And their, eye, their, their thought is, well, why are you telling us what to do in our own territory? Why are you telling us what to do in Tibet, which your government recognized as part of China in 1915? So th these, I think, are, are, I agree with the state. Uh, this is something that's got to be worked out by the Chinese, but I think they also need to give some uh, 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 more humane attention, perhaps, uh, to the minorities. But the minorities also need to accommodate themselves to reality. Well, I would like to add one other point, uh, Henry, because I know this is a very serious issue. As somebody who cares strongly about the U.S.-China relationship, I have to say that if the Tibetans are unhappy about the way they're being treated in China, that affects our relationship in a negative way. And from that standpoint, I really think it's important for the Chinese government to keep working on trying to find a better way of managing a problem that they have not handled that successfully over the last 50 years, during which they've been actually in control in Tibet. Uh, so that this is something that does relate to our bilateral relationship. Uh, but that doesn't mean that I, as a specialist in the area, would necessarily be able to tell them how to deal with the issue effectively, but it's an issue that needs to be dealt with. I think that in terms of Xinjiang, though, you've got a very special problem there in terms of the Uyghurs, where there's eight or ten million of them there. And the few times that they've tried to rise up, one was in April 90 when I was still there, and it was absolutely crushed brutally by the Chinese. They put in six divisions and helicopters and knocked them out. This doesn't ameliorate the long hatred that the Uyghurs have for China control. And we'd see that from the Chinese in Xinjiang that they were quite concerned about how they were handling the Uyghur problem. But there's two elements of that. The first is that we've caught Uyghurs in Afghanistan working with the most radical elements of the Taliban. Second, the Uyghurs have, we have, we, we've gotten a mother of the key Uyghur there. She's in the States now and she's continuing to agitate the problem. The Chinese find it very difficult to handle this minority because they are, Tibet is an occupied area. Xinjiang, you've got this areas where the, the, the uh, Uyghur Muslims in Kashgar and places like this have control. And the Chinese are trying to dilute that over the long term by bringing in irredentism, by being, bringing people to take it over for the Han Chinese. And the Uyghurs know exactly what they're doing. So we are, we've declared the Uyghurs a terrorist group. And this then lumps them with the Taliban and Hezbollah and other uh, the, the terrorist groups as something that we would work against. Just, just part of the Uyghurs, to be fair. East Turkestan. Just one particular one movement. Of the movements. That is it. But that is a powerful movement. It's, a, it's the people that cause the uprisings. It's the people that are probably the solidification of the hardcore Uyghurs around this group. 
and it spreads out. I mean, we, we know all about that in insurgency warfare, that you have the core and it spreads out in concentric circles to areas of support. Uh, so it's a, it's a difficult problem. And I think it, it, it's inevitable that Chinese going to be in charge. It's, it's going to be a very tough problem. It's going to be handled with the Uyghurs, extremists linked to outside forces. If you get to Tibet, you have a different problem because we were involved in Tibet, as you know. We were supplying the Tibetans because they were the only people we ever found that would fight the Chinese in the 50s. Nobody in Taiwan would fight them. Nobody in Korea would fight them. But the Tibetans would if you gave them a flask a day of the Dalai Lama's urine to drink. They would do anything. They would fight. Uh, this was crushed. This was, this was destroyed. But I remember going into, the, into Tibet with George Bush Sr. in 1977. We were taken to the museum. And here was this display of all the arms they'd captured from CIA, the radios, etc. I was in CIA at the time, so it was a little awkward. But uh, they had a big sign as you entered the museum with Lowell Thomas shaking hands with the representative of the Dalai Lama. And uh, it says agent of fascist American imperialist clique handing money to Dalai Lama running dog. This is what it says. And so when we got in, Bush said, what the hell did that say? I said, well, they were not very nice. And uh, he said, ask the Chinese about this because I'm going to criticize their handling in this, uh, this, this museum. Of course, you don't criticize museums. That's very unusual. He did. And he's, uh, the Chinese, uh, I think I, it was their, their interpreter, I think it was Yang Jiaqiu, came up to me afterwards and said, this is Lowell Thomas's book. He says he was supporting the Dalai Lama in 49. I looked at it, and there it is. So the vice president said, go, uh, elect, said, go see Lowell and find out what he says. And I showed it to him, and he said, well, I gave him money, and I damn well do it again. So we, did, we never really pushed the problem to the... Give it up. Drop it. Don't pursue it. Good luck. The, the other part of the story is I believe that Lowell Thomas spent his honeymoon in Tibet. With hmm. his new wife. Yes. And there was okay. lots of jokes about So, people. I mean, he wasn't just giving money in Tibet. There were other activities that he was involved in. <laughs> we, we, we need to, we need to bring this to a, a close. <laughs> and he had this girl, and, he, and the Chinese and had great humor about this guy consummating his marriage 14,000 feet up. And there was, there was a lot of byplay on this. Well, you know, sometimes, sometimes these historic events don't... Sometimes historic events don't live up to their billing. But tonight, it has far exceeded its billing. So I think we should thank...